invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15 for our Old Testament scripture reading. If you recall, Deuteronomy is the great ethics manual of the people of God under the Old Covenant, and it is no less true for us, though of course we have to read it in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you think that you need to remember that under the Old Covenant is that every seven years for the nation of Israel, there were remission of debts for the poor on a smaller scale every seven years and then on a larger scale every generation. And these remission of debts were intended to typify the remission of sins that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to consider what it would be like to be one who lends to the needy in the sixth year let's say the year before the remission of debts, and somebody comes uh, in great need, how tempting would it be to kind of give the stink eye to them, to view their request for aid with great suspicion? This is uh, the very thing that Moses himself is addressing to the people of God regarding our own disposition to caring for those in need. And of course, this relates to us in this present day and age as we relate to others within the household of faith. Now, keeping that in mind, let us give our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 15, reading verses 7 to 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, and any one of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you should not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, ah, the seventh year is near, the year of release is nearby, and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cries out to the Lord against you, and you are found guilty of sin." You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now turning with me... um, Uh, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. So we have a particular moment in the final week of Jesus' own earthly ministry where he points out uh, somebody who should be emulated for their faith and for their giving. I think uh, Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all that she had to live on. And now turn with me to our sermon text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As we've been working through this letter for several months now, we'll notice that there is a shift 
in Paul's tone as for the past several chapters, Paul has been focusing on what negatively uh, Corinth should be doing as they are called to repudiate the false teachers, those so-called super apostles that boast in themselves and in wealth or money grubbers. And now Paul uh, shifts his tone and focuses on particularly what the church should be doing positively in terms of caring for those within the church in need. We'll just read the first five verses uh, this morning. Paul writes this under inspiration of the Spirit, saying, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. This is God's holy word. Let us go before him in prayer and ask that he bless the reading of it and its preaching. Our gracious God and Father, we do confess that unless your spirit works in our hearts, we would remain blind to what your word so clearly teaches. Give us grace to hear and so shape our hearts that we might respond with faith and with joy. We ask these things in the name of Christ, who purchased us as his own treasured possession. Amen. Who's your biggest hero as a kid? You can say pretty much with eyes unflinching who my hero as a kid was. It was Luke Skywalker. Um, not for any uh, particular noble reason other than the fact that he had a really uh, shiny sword. Uh, my, Return of the Jedi was the first movie my parents took me to see as a kid. I was only three at the time, and uh, I have this picture uh, of, of me and my dad uh, uh, fighting with these toy lightsabers that we had, and it was uh, one, of, uh, uh, one of my most treasured uh, memories. And I think for many of us, uh, imitating particular people in our lives, uh, be they either uh, fictional characters or real life, uh, people is nothing new. I remember growing up, there was always the, the, the tagline, be like Mike. And anybody who was a child of the 80s knows exactly who it is that I'm talking about. You're talking about Michael Jordan. Uh, well, well, imitating heroes is, is nothing new. You know, in, in ancient Greece, it was said that uh, Alexander the Great, who was out conquering the known world, would sleep with a copy of Homer's Iliad under his pillow as he treated the Iliad as some sort of travelogue, uh, emulating Achilles as he goes about on his conquests. Uh, think of all the people that uh, children aspire to be like uh, today. Um, uh, the people in our lives whom we seek to emulate, be it for their strength or for their power, for their particular abilities, either in music or sports or, or any number of things, be it for their wealth or even for their wisdom. Well, the Bible also presents to us figures that are to be imitated. This is something that I think we often fail to recognize it's more common, perhaps, than we might think. I mean, consider the number of times in the Gospels, for instance, that Jesus commends individuals of the faith worth imitating, where Jesus points out an individual and says, never have I seen faith like all this in all of Israel. In other words, what? Be like that person. 
Three times in Paul's letters, he'll say over and over again, imitate me. Why? Because I am seeking to imitate my Savior. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul, uh, 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 Peter says this, that Christ has suffered for you as your substitute, but he has also set for you an example that you might follow in his steps. Hebrews 11 presents for us a litany of people that we are called to emulate in the faith to imitate. Well, our passage here is no exception. Perhaps this is a passage that we first don't think about when it comes to questions regarding imitating others in the faith, but this is exactly what Paul is setting forth for the Corinthian church. Here he puts the Macedonian churches on display as a model for aspiration, and a model of inspiration. And yet these churches are not to be imitated for their valor in war, nor are they to be imitated for their abundance of wealth. Rather, they are to be imitated for their participation in the gospel ministry. There's actually four ways in which Paul sets up the Macedonian church as an example to Corinth, and we're going to look at those four particular ways. But first, we have to back up and consider Who is the Macedonian church? Who is it that Paul is speaking of? Uh, So we can get a better idea of what it is that is going on in Paul's own ministry. So first we'll consider the question of the Macedonian church, uh, who they are, uh, and what it is that is going on. And then secondly, we'll consider the ways in which the Macedonian church is to be emulated. When Paul begins here, again, in verse 1 of chapter 8, giving a new transition in his letter, saying, now let me tell you all about God's grace that's going on in Macedonia. I think for many of us, we might be scratching our heads going, well, where is Macedonia? Well, if you look on your maps, you might have a a map located in the back of your Bible. If not, that's okay. But Macedonia is located uh, directly to the north of Greece. Uh, And there are at least three churches in Macedonia that we read about in the New Testament. Names that you might be more familiar with, that of the Church of Philippi, the Church of Thessalonica, and the Church of Berea. Those are the Macedonian churches. These are the churches that Paul has in mind. You need to recall that Paul is in the midst of one of his great missionary journeys, and as we're going to see in the coming weeks, one of the things that Paul has been tasked with is taking up a collection for the poor uh, members of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, We'll talk about those reasons in a few weeks, but uh, long story short, a massive famine has plagued Jerusalem and has left the Christian church in that region destitute. So now as Paul has been commissioned by the church as a missionary uh, to go to the Gentiles, he's been charged with this task to remember the the poor in Jerusalem. You read about that in Galatians chapter 2. So Paul's going around from church to church. That's one of the reasons Paul is making his way to visit Corinth yet another time. If you recall from our context over the past few weeks, um, uh, Paul has had a falling out of sorts with the church of Corinth. They have given ear to these false teachers who have uh, whispered lies about Pastor Paul and has caused the church to distrust Paul as he's coming to take a collection. They're claiming Paul is actually just trying to line his pockets. He's manipulating you to make a quick buck for himself. It's one of the things that Paul has been having uh, to address. 
And yet now Paul has made it to Macedonia. This is the region that Paul is writing from as he's awaiting news from his friend Titus regarding how Corinth has responded to this lost letter that we have from Paul to Corinth um, uh, regarding that so-called severe letter where Paul had to call them to repentance for some type of unspecified sin. As we know from last week, Paul has finally received word that they have repented, so now Paul can get to the matter at hand. I'm coming soon, and I'm coming to take up a collection for the poor. But now he calls into view um, the, the, the Macedonian churches, where he's staying at now and saying, I'm, I'm calling you, Corinth, to set the Macedonian churches before you as an example of cheerfulness and of giving. Now, uh, Macedonia used to be a wealthy area. Uh, if you read uh, kind of ancient, uh, ancient literature, uh, you know that the Macedonian silver mines were, were, were renowned for their vast wealth. You think of it kind of like a, a Deadwood or California during the gold rush. These, these vast amounts of mines, but uh, by Paul's own day and age, the Romans have ransacked those mines. They have, uh, they've milked the mines for all uh, that it's worth. They've plundered um, the silver. And now what were once thriving areas has been reduced to abject poverty. Uh, think of the state of uh, Macedonia uh, at, by Paul's day as something like the Rust Belt. Like these old coal mining towns that, that, that were thriving for a while and then the coal dried up. No more coal. And guess what? Um, the big industries move on and the people are left to dwell in poverty. This is the financial situation of the region in Macedonia. And it's the region from which Paul is writing it. Paul writes saying that despite their abject poverty, there's an overflow of God's grace flowing out of the hearts of believers here, men and women who have heard the gospel, they've heard of God's message of salvation that is found in Christ. So one of the things we need to notice is that Paul here, when he speaks of God's grace, he is not speaking in terms of material wealth. This is a very poor church, and yet there's an overabundance of grace flowing out of the hearts of this poor community church, right? This is not a uh, upper-middle-class, white-collar church. This is a poor congregation. And yet there is a change that has transpired, not with respect to their circumstances of these churches. Again, when you think uh, the Church of Macedonia, think Paul's letter to the Philippians, think of his letters to Thessalonica, think of Acts 17 with respect to the Church of Berea. There's not been a change in circumstances, but there has been a change in disposition. Now of a heart that cheerfully gives. That this salvation that is given freely by Christ, this salvation that is found only in Christ, has now reoriented the church's perspective on wealth. Paul is not preaching a health and wealth message here. He's not saying that he preached the gospel, they went to sleep, and they woke up, and there was a pot of gold that you know, was sitting underneath their pillow. You know, they woke up, and they were so poor. But they were rich beyond all measure in yet another way, and has overflowed in the way in which they see themselves with respect to their concern for their brothers and sisters in Christ. The grace of God has reoriented their disposition to earthly wealth and goods. 
Four key ways. First, we'll consider, you see here in verse 2, the evidence of God's grace is manifested in the fact that they have now given graciously despite their poverty. Paul says here, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I want you to consider that situation that they find themselves in the situation of extreme poverty. It's, an, it's a position of abject destitution. And yet, despite their financial situation, they are joyful. In other words, wealth does not define them. It's one of the things that we see throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is very clear. Greed is not a vice found only among the rich. Greed can be a vice found uh, among the poor uh, as well. Greed is always a lust for more of what you already have. And we find that the grace of God has so liberated the hearts of these churches that their earthly circumstances don't dictate their spiritual joy. Wealth does not define them. It does not control them. And yet it has so shaped them that even in the midst of their poverty, their joy has welled up in such a way that has spilled over into generous giving. Generous from the perspective that they don't have much to give, and yet they give anyway. Paul calls this the outcome of a severe test. And here is a church, uh, these Macedonian churches have been put through the ringer. Uh, this, this is a difficult final exam, so to speak. And yet the churches have passed with flying colors. In other words, their generous heart in the midst of trying financial times evidences God's grace in their lives, that they're, they're joyful. They give cheerfully despite affliction, despite poverty, despite financial pressures. And the, again, the question is not for these churches, how much do you give? Uh, but how much has your heart disposition changed? question is not how much do you give, but how do you give? Do you give cheerfully, or do you act like Uncle Scrooge? Second evidence of God's grace in their lives we see here in verse 3, that they gave beyond their capacity. First of all, Paul says they gave according to their means. Again, the point is not how much they give. I remember a couple years ago when I was still living just outside of Chicago, uh, I went down to the Navy Pier. They've got this really great, it's the the Chicago Shakespeare Society, uh, and, and they're putting on a rendition of um, uh, of Macbeth. It's the, the greatest rendition of Macbeth I've ever seen. But when you, when you flip through the bulletin as you're waiting for uh, the play to begin, in that program there was a list of donors, and there were a list of how much individual donors have, have made. And so if you gave um, over $10,000, you were part of the Barb Circle Ambassadors. I don't know if you got like a pin or like a merit badge or what. Uh, it's not something that I, I'd ever introduce any, not that I have $10,000 to give, uh, but it's not, how, you know, hello, Charles Williams, Bard Circle Ambassador. But that's what it says uh, in the program. If you gave more than $5,000, you were called a Bard Circle Fellow. More than $2,500, you were uh, in that category listed by name as being a Bard Circle Patron. If you gave more than 1000 you were a Bard Circle Partner. More than $500, you are a colleague. Um, if you gave $150 or $250, you're a friend. If you gave $150 to this organization, you're an associate. If you gave nothing like me, you know, you're dead to them. 
It won't stop them from calling you asking for money from time to time, but it's something that evidences that, uh, that we see in the world around us that there are certain levels of friendship based off of how much you give to a certain uh, individual or association. You remember the story of the prodigal son. Here's a guy who had a lot of money, had a big inheritance that he squandered. He had a lot of friends so long as he had a lot of money. But as soon as the, 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 the inheritance dried up, what happened? He lost all of his friends. He's back eating out of the pig trough. So how we see the world operate around us is that your level of friendship is determined by how much you give. But that is not how the kingdom of Christ works. Remember Mark chapter 12? Jesus is sitting in church, as it were, and he's just looking at people dropping off their money in the offering boxes as going by, and he sees the rich, you know, throwing you know, the big change in, making a loud noise. Jesus says nothing. He just keeps looking. And then this, this, excuse me, this poor widow comes in. She's got a penny. That's all she's able to give. And she does it discreetly. And then what does Jesus do? He stops up. He goes, oh, stop the presses. Who is it? Whose faith is it that's to be emulated? Is it the rich who's given a lot, but it's because they can afford to give a lot? Or is it this poor widow who has given out of her poverty? He puts that question to the disciples. It's, it's really striking. Who is it that's to be imitated here? In other words, the point is not how much money you give. And by the way, even as the pastor, I have no clue how much anybody in here gives. I don't look at any of those reports. So I'm not calling out anybody. <laughs> so you know. The point here, what Paul is getting, it's not how much money you're putting in the plate. The question is your own heart's disposition. Are you giving cheerfully? And in response to what? And so Paul says that these churches here, as poor as they are, they gave according to their means. More than that, actually, they gave beyond their means. You're going, whoa, buddy, <laughs> are you sure you can do this? It leads to a third evidence of God's grace in their lives. You see here in verse 4, it says they gave of their own volition. This is not the picture of Paul being some type of snake oil salesman going into kind of a, a rural poor community and saying, hey, give me all your money. Stick them up. Paul says, I'm not knocking down their doors. They came knocking down my door saying, please let us give and let us give more. This, this tells us of the disposition of these particular churches. They are begging to give. Paul gives this loaded phrase here in verse 4. I think the ESV puts it something like this, that they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the ministry of the saints. Yet there in the Greek, he uses five or six loaded terms that really tie together the various themes that he has been threading together throughout this letter. If you remember in uh, the the opening chapter uh, of, of this letter, Paul talks about how the Spirit of God comes to comfort us in the midst of our affliction so that when we are afflicted, we could comfort others with that same comfort whereby we have been comforted. And that is spoken of as a favor of a grace, demonstrating that grace of God to others, that we might uh, participate, that we might enjoy the fellowship, the communion, this, this word that's translated about 17 different ways in, uh, uh, in your ESV or your NIV, that, that idea of, of life together. And here he speaks of the ministry. So prayer, comfort, grace, communion, that word for ministry is the word there for the diaconal work, the diaconal ministry. It's all used to describe it. All these words are used to describe 
the collection, the diaconal collection. That it is a favor. It is taking part in... It's the same word that Paul... Let me put it like this. The same word Paul uses to describe the Lord's Supper, koinonia, it's the same word he uses to describe here of the offering, the collection plate. It is a picture of life together as the people of God. What Paul is not doing here is he's not giving us a philosophy of philanthropy. Rather, he is giving a profoundly theological statement regarding this aspect of worship. This is not an afterthought. I think many of us probably treat the, uh, the offering uh, collection box in the back as a kind of pin the tail on the donkey thing. It's kind of an afterthought. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember my checkbook this week. Drop off. No, no, for Paul, this is something that is robustly theological. Remember one of the things that we confess with our faith together this morning, and something that Paul's going to tease out over the next two chapters, is that Christ cares for us in both body and soul. What does the Lord's Prayer teach us? Not only to pray daily, forgive us our debts, but also what? Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Christ cares for us in both body and soul, so much so that he has ordained distinct offices to care for these. The minister and the elders to care to your spiritual needs, but the diaconate as its own distinct office to care for the physical well-being and the material needs of the people of God when they fall uh, into a time of severe testing and affliction. As we confessed, With our Confession of Faith, chapter 26, just a few moments ago, the duties and privileges we owe one another regard not only the inner man, but the outer man as well. We're not Gnostics. It's all we're saying. That when we say we we are called to care for one another, it's not simply when you hear, oh, you're out of a job, I'll be praying for you. It's what can I do to help? This relief work for the fellow believers you notice is, again, this is not, Paul's not outlining a, philanth- a philosophy of, of philanthropy, although there's some, some good principles here. But Paul is directing this towards the church. Notice that this is a collection plate that is being taken up for the needs of fellow believers. Paul writes about this in Galatians 6, that, to, that we're to, call, to care for one another, especially those of the household of faith. So as Paul is going from church to church, taking up a collection, notice this, notice the theological ramifications of his understanding of the church. He's going from congregation to congregation, taking up this relief work, this uh, financial contribution for those who are within the church, yet it's for particular individuals who are outside the local church. That's why... If I, if I could be so crass, this is why we're Presbyterian. We have to have a theology of the church that takes into account more than simply this local congregation. That's why we have uh, an association of other churches in the Northwest, called the Presbytery of the Northwest, that gathers together twice a year to deal with the needs of the churches in this region. That's why we have a general assembly every year, to deal with the needs of all the churches in our denomination, not just dealing with doctrinal issues or controversies that might arise, but ensuring that the churches are cared for, be they church plants or churches that are well-established or churches that are in the midst of struggling due to various financial difficulties, due to circumstances that have arisen for one reason or another. 
This reminds us that churches are not autonomous congregations, each congregation doing its own thing, but whether we are called to care for one another in a deep and meaningful way. And that's why we have. Uh, that's why even during our intercessory prayer, we don't just pray for the needs of the members of this congregation. We also pray for at least one church in our presbytery or denomination every week to remind us that the church extends beyond these four walls. What I think is really fascinating is the, the gospel grammar that Paul is giving here. If you recall a few weeks ago on a Sunday evening, we talked about the, the so-called grammar of the gospel, that Paul always has two particular principles in mind no matter what letter he is writing. There's the indicative where Paul declares the great fact of salvation that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, in response to that, there is the great imperative of, in response to the gospel. How it is that we are to live in light of the great indicative. Now for seven chapters, Paul has been spelling out the great indicatives of the gospel. That we have been reconciled to God through Christ. That through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit works and brings us benefits that Moses could never give. Because the Spirit has been outpoured in fulfillment of the prophets who have foretold of the, out, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit in light of Joel chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah 4 and so on and so forth. Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel 36. The Spirit has been outpoured and now we have been united to Christ by faith and we get to participate in all these benefits, reconciliation, justification, even the great hope of the resurrection of the body on the last day. Seven chapters, that's the great indicative of our salvation. Now we get to chapter 8, what's the imperative? Paul now turns attention to our wallets. That the gospel impacts how it is that we view caring for other believers within the congregation. Paul is not saying, give more so I can get a bigger paycheck. Paul is taking up a collection for the poor saints. This is about how we care about those beside us who are in great need. The gospel grammar of 2 Corinthians is because we have been reconciled to God, we are called to love one another. Not only in word, but in deed. Chapters 1-7 to seven reject the, the, the teachings of these so-called super-apostles who boast in themselves, who are trying to, uh, to, to siphon money off you. Negatively put, now positively put. Love those around you who are hurting. Not just spiritually, but attend to their physical needs as well. Make sure they have food and clothing. This leads to a fourth evidence of God's grace in the, the lives of these Macedonian churches. Verse 5, they gave themselves first and foremost to the Lord. Notice the reason why the churches are giving. It's not because uh, it's a tax write-off. It's not because that by giving they can become a member of the inner circle of financial contributors to the church that they now get a chance to have the fanciest pew in the building they're not giving to make a name for themselves. They're not giving to impress anybody. Remember what Jesus says, even when you give, make sure that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. There's a manner in which we are called to give that, that retains a certain amount of secrecy. 
We're not given, giving so that we can tell everybody, look how great I am. We're giving because we're trying uh, to, to truly care for those in need. And, and notice they're not even giving as, um, as a way to leverage kind of future business networking opportunities within the church. Rather, what Paul says is they are giving because they have given themselves first and foremost to the Lord. In other words, their giving is an act of wholehearted devotion to Christ. It is an expression of love to the Lord who bought them from slavery and from sin. This is the Macedonian example. This is is a really loaded five verses. As Paul gives this litany of things that we are called to emulate of, of a very poor church, and yet they are a model of faith and of godliness. Here is a church that gave graciously despite their poverty. Here is a church that gave according to their means and, in fact, even beyond their own capacity. Here is a church that gave of their own volition. They weren't, um, uh, the, the pastor wasn't begging them to give. They were the ones begging. It shows how their hearts have been reor- reoriented in a response to the gospel. And finally, they gave of themselves first and foremost to the Lord. This is not like Ananias and Sapphira, where they're giving uh, so that they can have some measure of esteem among their peers. They are giving because they see this as, a, as first and foremost an act of worship. And as we'll see in verse 7, and as we'll consider next week, Paul will say, you are to excel in this act of grace as well. Excel in it. Here's the model. Emulate them. But not just them. We'll see in verse 8. Christ himself models this very thing for us. As Christ, though he was rich beyond all splendor, divested himself of the riches of heaven by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, by being born under the law, by bearing the curse of the law, by bearing God's wrath against us as poor, miserable sinners. Why? So that we might inherit the righteousness of heaven itself. That God's condescension in the person of His Son by stooping to save sinners models how it is that we can stoop to care for others in the household of faith as well. This really shapes our understanding of the collection plate, the collection box. Perhaps we think of the Sunday offerings as an add-on or as an optional portion of the service. Perhaps you we might merely see it as a pragmatic thing. This is something you do just to keep the lights running, to keep the lights on. But for Scripture, it's something much more profound than that. Yeah, there are the basic needs and amenities that have to keep up this this outpost of God's kingdom, for sure. But we also give so we might provide for the missionaries that we support, that we might provide uh, for those uh, for the diaconal fund as our, our as our two deacons labor and labor hard to care for those here in the church who are in great need. What we see here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is a a profound meditation on the nature of Christian communion. That we are called and encouraged to give, not for the purpose of making our names great, not for the purpose of building a bigger and better uh, building, not for the purpose of lining the pockets of charlatans, but so that we might give out of concern for fellow Christians in need, not only within the local congregation, but also within the wider church. 
See, Westminster is not called simply to be a church in isolation, but a church that is in real communion with saints around the world. And one tangible expression of that participation is through the work of the diaconate, an office that Christ himself has established to show us how much he cares for his people, not just in our souls, but also in our bodies. The concern is not the financial amount. This isn't a tax. Paul's going to say this quite explicitly. I'm not, I'm not taxing you. This is not an exaction. I'm not going to be looking each individual in the face going, have you given this week or not? But rather, he is calling you to examine your own heart and saying, what can we do in response to the grace that God has given us towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for the riches that we have in Christ. And we ask that as Christ laid down his life for us, so uh, teach us to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.